0: Who says tech can't be human? Somebody that's somehow able to get access to the information, create the right types of models, the right types of understanding around risk in security. I think that's the holy grail right now. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast.
1: We get in, another vendor running another podcast ad, trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor Axonius does, we've brought in an Axonius customer to fill you in. Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The
2: sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location it is just, I, I can't express how important that is for us.
1: Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Axonius? Watch the video at axonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash MindBody.
2: What's going on, everybody? You're in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back.
1: To the show. Glad to be back again with a guest here in the studio with us. Today we have Max Lamont Brassard. Max is the founder of LimaCharlie.io. Max, I know that you've pretty much seen just about everything. You've done a lot on your own, but now you have a full team, a full company.
2: But most importantly, welcome to the show. Hey, super happy to be here. Super happy to have you. One of the things that I personally picked up on right away in having some of the earlier conversations with you is your passion about the community, not just in the little niches of the community, but the community across the board. Where would you say that passion for the practitioner, the passion for improving things in our space, where does that come from for you?
0: I think it's because I used to do that all the time, too. I started not from the business school, but really from doing cybersecurity. At a bunch of different places. So I've done a lot of the things that the community is doing from reverse engineering to like working in a sock to the whole gamut to building tools. So I feel I've suffered the pain all the way through. And really, when I started Lima Charlie, the goal wasn't to make the silver bullet that somehow was going to automatically save everybody, but really to just help people that were working and doing their job and helping empower them, I guess.
1: Your origin story, in some ways, is almost like any technologist's dream, where you have a great idea, there's a gap in the space, and you start to create a tool for it, but then it blossoms into something else. Tell us a bit about how that worked for you. How did Lima Charlie come to fruition, but also, how did it also become a
0: business? It's funny because the name really followed that trend, but things really changed a lot over time. The origin is that I worked on a thing that was called Lima Charlie, which was an EDR. And I started that back in the day while I worked at Google. It was a way for me to have a reaction to what I could see in the EDR space. So I've done a a ton of endpoint stuff in the past and I could see all the tools slowly migrating towards antivirus, meaning, hey, here's the thing that automatically detects bad things. I was getting frustrated, especially like at Google, talking to so many really good people that knew what they were doing, and I just couldn't actually do it because the tools were geared towards super simple stuff. So I said, hey, I've built EDR stuff in the past. I'm going to build an EDR. And I started that in the open source. So it was initially purely an EDR. And when I left Google, I was at a point where, hey, there was this EDR that was in the open source. So it had an EDR in my back pocket is how I think about it. And I knew that I wanted to start something that could have a bigger impact. EDR is I to compare it to virtual machines. 15 years ago, there's a pivot point between hey, virtual machines are the super cool technology that two people know how to build, to, yeah, 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 we know what this is, here's EC2. And so I felt like it was at that point. So I didn't want to start an EDR because it didn't feel like the right scope. So I ended up taking this EDR and making it the kernel of what Lima Charlie now is, but applying it to a much kind of bigger vision, which was essentially, I, I always feel slightly dirty whenever I say that, but this AWS for cybersecurity. So this idea of, hey, here's an ecosystem of tools that are designed to be Lego blocks. They're not designed for mom and pop. They're really designed for people that do cybersecurity day in, day out, whatever, if it's enterprise or MSSPs, but really to empower them to go and apply their knowledge, but also to do that in a really easy to access, scalable kind of thing. So that was how things evolved. But that vision was, it used to be really, really hard to talk about it because I think a lot of people, it was very novel for them or it was very counterintuitive, I guess I should say. A lot of people would come to us and say, oh yeah, what's the 20 page contract that I need to sign to be able to go and talk to a salesperson that's going to vet me so I can have a demo. And so it was just, we had a lot of good laughs back in the day. And so today I think that's evolved a whole lot where people now get a bit more what it is that we do.
2: Talk to us a little bit about that process of going from Google to having your own thing. A lot of folks, they probably feel they could start a business or they feel like they could create a product, but there's a little bit of that fear inside them that says, you know what, I have a great job, I'll make a great income, I don't want to go out on a limb but one of our good friends, Charles Nuwatu he always brings up, you have to go out on a limb because that's where the fruit is. So talk us through that mental process behind betting on yourself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, it wasn't a process going from Google to starting a company, but really throughout my whole career, without necessarily knowing at the time that's where I was heading, looking back like to talk about it in terms of always being N plus one. So I've always been trying to build a thing that didn't exist where I was and push those limits. And so I think Google was in a way, the end of the road, because when I was at Google, I was in Google X, eventually became Chronicle Security. So it was this already this like semi startup environment. And so it just felt leaving that the only place left to go was for me to start something because I realized that I wouldn't be able to get that N plus one by joining another startup or anything like that. So it was a natural thing for me. I think that the point you said around being worried about it is so important in my mind. This doesn't apply to everybody in all industries. Let's start by being super clear with that. If I was doing something completely different, it'd be a very different setup. But we're talking about cybersecurity. The demand in cybersecurity is so high that this risk is really a perceived risk, but I don't think it's really an actual risk. Yeah, things might change in the future, the job market might get way harder, but realistically, right now, the risk isn't that high. So if you're finding that you're interested and you have those ideas and you have that drive, that's really the core part. If it doesn't work, you have to calibrate, hey, what's your worst case scenario? I do this for a year or two, turns out it doesn't work. I go back and I find another great job. That's the type of risk, I think, in my mind that's there. So I really encourage people, the flip side, not the flip side of that, but the I think the sort of reality check for that is that having an idea and kind of building the product over time, it turns out that it's a smaller part of starting a business. I think it's important to realize that starting a business in and of itself is a ton of work without thinking about the product itself. So be careful not to be naive to think, hey, I'm going to build this thing and everybody's going to come to me. I'm just going to be able to build the thing and it'll sell itself. Maybe you'll be really, really lucky, but I don't know if that's quite what happens to most people.
1: That's what we all hope for. You build it and they will come. But like you're saying, it might not happen that way. Especially
0: as a practitioner. We love the product. So that's where it starts.
1: And you mentioned something that I thought was pretty funny in my mind, and that's, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go back and get a regular job and I'll go back to the normal life. But we know that's not how stories work out. (laughs) Stories have that point of no return. When would you say that point of no return was for you? Because... You're still running Lima Charlie, despite the good, the bad, the ugly, and you're not going to go back, I would imagine. So what was that point of no return?
0: That's totally true. And I think I didn't mention that because it's a happy point of no return, not ominous point of no return. (laughs) I leave after two years and go get another job. That's like the worst case scenario, the most negative thing, which is I lived through something and now I get to go and do the same type of thing that I was doing before. But you're totally right, the, it'd be interesting to see the stats. But once you've tasted this being control in a way over your own destiny for the good and the bad, I think it's really addictive. I think there's a feedback loop to that, which is as you go and you start something, you realize that everything that exists out there was also started by somebody in the same way, and it's possible. And so it opens up how you look about the future in terms of the possibilities, the things that you could go and build. And I think that's a negative thing that some people inherently think, which is these products and these companies out there exist. It's their natural state of existence and they're already big. And there's that reaction that I can't go and do something like that because I'm not big today. But it's really a bootstrap thing. As you get your first customer and they give you 10 bucks a month, that's an amazing feeling. And you realize as you keep building that, Everybody went through exactly that. And that's how you go through it.
2: Speaking of possibilities, I'm sure your mind is a lot like our mind when it comes to seeing problems and then wanting to find solutions to those problems. But sometimes you have to stay the course with a particular path. But are there other things that you see holes in the community, holes in the industry that you're like, someone needs
0: to solve this problem, but you don't see anyone solving it yet? That is a great and also really difficult question. I think one of the fundamental problems in security, and that's not going to be news to anybody, but is this incentivization problem. How often do you hear about this company, somebody reported some vulnerability and they didn't do anything? And I'll be the first to kind of say that might be fine. There's a risk reward thing going on and a return on investment in terms of fixing this versus the risk of something actually bad happening. But the problem is that as an industry, for us to make that risk reward call on security vulnerabilities is incredibly difficult for us that are in security every day. So you take that up a couple of levels and you go, hey, for the random CEO of the random company that's probably not a tech company, how can they even do that? That is the one of the biggest challenges. And so there were some interesting contenders in that space in my mind. Insurance. Is insurance going to be the category of entity that's going to help drive this? Because hypothetically, If it was car accidents, they could have the statistics to go and say, look, here's your survival rate if you have a seatbelt versus if you don't, and here's how much it costs, here's the whole statistical model. And from that, they're able to come up with various coverage costs. And that indirectly drives a lot of companies to appropriately manage how they work with their risk because of insurance. So is insurance going to be the thing for cybersecurity? That's, I think, a huge question because fundamentally, we can't even make that call ourselves. So somebody that's somehow able to get access to the information, create the right types of models, the right types of understanding around risk in security, I think that's the holy grail right now.
1: From my experience, it seems one of the biggest challenges in security is actually, there's two big things in my mind. One is getting the talent having the right people in the right position to know how to execute and carry out the mission, but then to have the right solutions or technology in place. And both of these are extremely expensive. When you were spending your days at Google and now looking at what you do at Lima Charlie, how do you marry these two? How do you approach talent, looking at talent in the right way? But also how do you make sure that your customers are also understanding their capabilities that they can use a tool immaturely.
0: That's interesting. To be honest, I don't think we're unique in that way, in terms of those dynamics. Hey, there's a talent shortage. And I think what has happened in other industries, I often go back to this mapping from cybersecurity to how IT was 15 years ago, where there was also a talent shortage and there's a lot of product in the space and you could easily have said, oh, you need the right product to do the right thing. And I think that's certainly true to a certain extent. But what we've seen in the IT space has been this increase in maturity where people got better. So around the talent, people just got more knowledge, I would say, or the knowledge became more standard among IT practitioners. And I think the same thing is slowly happening in cybersecurity. I was mentioning like, hey, EDR, I don't have to give you a brand. You know, 90% of a feature set just by knowing EDR. So I think that's going on, the product side though, that's where there's a lot that needs to evolve in my opinion. Yes, the right technologies need to be in place, But it's important that we don't treat those technologies magic spells or the silver bullet that you buy and like somehow that one product solves all of your issues. I think we all wish the world worked like that, but the reality is that it doesn't. The complexity in IT is growing all the time. The difference in ecosystems is also growing all the time. If I go, I look at the internal network of Walmart or I go and look at the internal network of General Motors... I'm sure they're completely different. So I think beyond the product, what's important is for people to start to put the right understandable controls in place. How they get to those types of controls isn't as critical as understanding what those controls are and being able to have the lay of the land of what coverage you do have, what you don't have, And to understand really the type of coverage, how you get that coverage, not to just rely on sort of one vendor telling you that they're the best at zero trust. It's about what does that mean? How am I protected? How am I not protected? How do I then merge that into risk? So that kind of stuff.
2: I'm glad we're talking about products for a second. I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago that was pontificating on the potential future of products. On one side, you have a potential for there to be products that are very, very targeted in the solutions, the problems that they solve. And on the other hand, you have these bigger companies that are looking at suites. They're trying to tick as many boxes as they possibly can and help you get the coverage that you need. From your
0: perspective, do you see us going one way or the other, or are we going right down the middle with a little bit of both? I think the timing is the important part. Here's the two dimensions that kind of operate here in my mind. So one is in terms of how well-defined a type of product is. When a product gets well-defined enough that what I was saying, right, EDR, everybody knows what I'm talking about, or firewall, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Those become closer to a commodity And what that means is that now this bundles approach start to make a lot more sense because you're saying, look, I have 50 different vendors sell me firewalls. At the end of the day, it's not, I don't mean to look down on that, but it's not rocket science in the sense that firewalls are well understood nowadays. So having a single vendor that's able to provide me with all of these more commodity-based solutions, then that's great. It just simplifies the ecosystem. That's a great thing. And that evolves over time. There's some really cutting edge stuff that's going out today. And there's two startups doing that. And that's amazing. They're at the forefront. And a lot of companies will end up buying those single products because that's the one spot where it can be done. And there's a lot of innovation over time. Things go toward commodity. That second dimension in my mind is in terms of visibility. And so that is having that ability, not just to buy, again, a bundle of things that I don't have the ability to introspect and customize. Because I think the risk in that is that now you're just really taking a bunch of black box systems and putting them together. At the end of the day, you're not going to be able to really reason about what it is that you're doing. So, having this visibility, and I think that's where open source is that in that second dimension. Open source. The great advantage of it is around that customizability, the visibility, understanding the type of protection that you're getting out of it. So I think those two things are really driving the type of adoption that people are seeing in the product over time. Yeah, for sure. I think it goes. Things will optimize it on both those axes. And this AWS, I can get a firewall in AWS, no problem. But I also have full control over where and how it's applied. So. That's how it's optimized.
1: What makes you proud to see, especially from a security perspective, what story can you share to where you took a step back and said, I love it? What's the
0: story that you could share there? There's a lot of things that kind of go into that bucket. There's things in the industry that make me really happy. And there's things in my day to day working with people that usually Charlie. So in the industry, I think what makes me happy is things like Sigma. So we're seeing a lot of pickup on Sigma. So it's gaining a lot of traction for that visibility aspect of things. It's really saying as a community, detection engineering is a thing. It's no longer secret that's held by a couple of magical cybersecurity companies, but really as a community, we can go and we can build those. And as we build those We don't lose anything to the attacker. So the security by obscurity isn't a big deal. So I think it's a great sign of maturity. Things like Atomic Red Team are also a great sign of the cybersecurity industry getting closer to engineering, getting closer to say, hey, we have to justify how we think about how we're building things in cybersecurity tests in the case of Atomic Red Team. So that makes me really, really happy in general. In the day-to-day, it also makes me super happy to see cases. What we're building is a big Lego block set, so inherently we can't predict exactly how people are going to build it and assemble it together. And so we put our version into the world of telling people like, hey, we think things should work like X. And we're pretty, I think we're towards the forefront of this infrastructure as code and organization and all these things. And every now and then we speak with a user and they explain to us how they use the platform And it's just way beyond what we've been talking about publicly. So it's pushing that boundary of what we thought was the right innovative future looking way to build things. And then somebody just comes in and says, no, 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 we've been using it in that way with that type of structure. And they're just they're redefining, I think, what future looking is. So it's super exciting.
2: You touched on a lot of great points, and those are a lot of reasons that I'm excited about what's going on in cybersecurity. Things are always going to be a little bit different for different folks, whether you have a different technology environment, you have different processes, maybe you even have different skill sets on your team. And there are a lot of divisive topics. A lot of folks get wrapped around the axle when you talk about zero trust. A lot of folks get wrapped around the axle when you talk about a sockless model for security. What is that one thing that you wish that we could solve? That one topic of division that you wish that we could all come
0: together at the end of the day? Oh, man, that's a tough one. I think if there was one topic, I think that's pie in the sky. I'm not pointing to anybody in this right, absolutely. because I think it's a, it's a global problem. But I think... Red teaming is a type of activity, it's very utopic on my part, but it's a type of activity I kind of wish we didn't have to do. And what I mean by that is there's a, several benefits from red teaming. And I think historically, like the biggest one had been to demonstrate to people that are not in cybersecurity that the A, they are vulnerable, it's a real thing and it can have a real impact. I remember... Back in my day, in government, a red team that was able to, making examples, but read the CEO's email, print them out and give it to them, that's a huge impact. And I kind of hope that over time, we're able to move away from that, where having to drive this idea that these things are real and they're important can go away. And so that the kind of the particulars of a red team, which is, hey, we got in through X becomes irrelevant because people are already bought in to this idea that, yes, we need to defend. It shifts a lot more on the blue team side of things where we go. All of the vulnerabilities are important and we prioritize against them. It doesn't matter that a specific red team got in through a specific way. It's one defensive construction that we're trying to do
1: everything is connected. And like you were saying, it's not always that simple, but we got to start somewhere. And I love that piece of advice. Max, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to jump on the mics with us. For anyone that wants to stay up to date with Max, please check out the show notes for a link to Lima Charlie and all of Max's social. And with that, we will see everyone next time.
2: found value in this content it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee